Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thanks for joining us today. You're about to hear a conversation that I recently had with one of the co-authors of a new book, Union, A Democrat, A Republican, and A Search for Common Ground. This is a book that was written by two friends, Jordan Blaschick and Christopher Haw, and they drove across country and drove through various parts of the country over the course of a couple of different years, uh, starting in 2016. They met each other at law school when they were at Yale and found that while they had political differences and ideological differences, they had a lot of other things in common. And because Jordan's sister was getting married on the West Coast, uh, he invited Chris along with him to take a road trip. And they learned so much, not only about each other, but about the country in the course of that road trip that they decided to do it several more times. Uh, And in some cases with different people um, and to different parts of the country. Now, these are really interesting journeys and I hope you will read the book. But the reason we wanted to talk with Jordan is to hear more about what he and Chris learned as they were driving across country, talking about issues that were important to them, immigration, uh, politics more generally, the economy, criminal justice reform, and kind of hashing that out between the two of them, but also getting to know a lot of other people across the country and a lot of different parts of the country. And what we wanted to know was what they took away from that journey that helped them better understand how to have civil discourse and what we can apply from their lessons in our own conversations and particularly in this year, 2020, um, a year that seems to have so many difficult issues and so much polarization. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. One of the things that I was really struck by, we had a couple of weeks ago, we had Pamela Paresky, who's a lecturer at the University of Chicago, and she's a psychologist. She's got a project called The Habits of a Free Mind. And one of the things she was talking about is when we think about polarization and people disagreeing and all that, and, and feeling really strong about disagreement on various topics, which comes out in the book where you guys get into disagreements, you know, whether it's in the car or before you go on the trip, feeling so strongly that it's really hard to get past that. And she talks about the importance of looking at other people and saying, you know, this person seems to be like me in a lot of ways, right? They're an intelligent person. They care for the people in their lives. They care and they want the best for the people in their lives. And if they're that much like me, I ought to have some intellectual curiosity about how they came to this conclusion that's so radically different than mine. And I feel like in the course of your journeys, but in your conversations, that's a lot about what happened with you and Chris and other people that you talked to. It was kind of developing not just empathy, but curiosity about how they got there. Does that seem in line with, with your experience? Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly what Chris and I found. When, when, we, when we first started, you know, we, like everyone else, we wanted to 
have arguments. We wanted to talk about the issues of the day. And we would get so frustrated when we felt like the other person wasn't understanding our side or we, we felt points were so obvious. How could they not understand it the way I understood it? And over time, what we found both with each other and the people we met um, was that everyone has these these views that are shaped by their their experiences in life, and those those experiences are powerful. And so, of course, they've come to to see things a certain way. And it doesn't mean that that they're right or wrong, or that we're right or wrong. And it's through the 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 ability to exchange and share that you're able to see blind spots in your own worldview in areas where whatever you've uh, come to on a certain decision, while you know it might be reasoned, it's also incomplete. And uh, and so we we found that when you're able to get down to those deeper conversations, it's enriching for both sides. Yeah, a big piece of that too, it seems to me, has something to do with the kind of I mean, just in general, relationship building, right? So when you're talking about what was the place you guys used to go and have cigars and ah, the Al Shop, the Al Shop, right? So when you're talking about in the book, those conversations, there is this performative aspect, right? There's a whole crowd of people and things can quickly get to a point where one or the other of you, it sounds like is willing to just walk away from the conversation, right? You don't have that option when you're in a car together, first of all, but also you don't have other people watching. Did that make a big difference whether somebody was paying attention to what you were talking about in how your conversations went? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think there are... Um two things that tend to derail conversations, um, especially around politics. I think one of those things is, is tribalism. It's when we feel like we have to defend our tribe. And that means we're not actually speaking as ourselves. We're, we're speaking on behalf of some other entity, um, some of which, you know, the policy positions of which we might agree with some, we might disagree with others, but no matter what, we have to dis- defend this thing. And we found that that always derailed our conversations. And then second is when there is a performative element to it. And that's like someone's watching or it's it's over social media. And we, we noticed this, especially um, at the Trump rally in Phoenix that we talk about in the yeah. book where, yep. you know, whenever the spotlights or camera was nearby, people were performing and they were, they were trying to show off for the camera. They were engaging in rhetoric that they would never engage in if they were sort of in a more reasoned um, uh, sort of calm setting. But when you got away from the cameras, you could see people having real conversations. And I, I think that's true in ordinary life when, when it's just two people talking as friends, uh, either at a dinner table or in a car together, you can have a different kind of conversation than if a bunch of people are watching. Because at that point, it does become a little more zero sum. It's like, well, you know, did he have the better point or did she you know, win the argument? Um, and at that point, we, you know, emotions flare and, and you end up getting into a more tit for tat, like who's, you know, who's going to win kind of debate yeah. versus an exchange. Yeah, you say something on that Phoenix rally about the camera. Uh, the camera brings out the beast in all of us, right? Like not the best, but the beast in all of us, which I think is interesting. I also wonder though, too, how much of that comes from us n- liking the conflict, right? Like liking to watch the conflict. And when it comes to real life, people are a lot more, um, they're a lot more complicated than just one side or the other. I mean, you guys found that in the car, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, so Chris and I often talk about how like, I love political combat. I, I really enjoy sparring with someone over politics and I find it really fun. And the, the challenge is, you know, what starts out as lighthearted and just for fun somehow begins to feel a little more personal and, you know, emotion begins to creep into the conversation where someone actually feels very strongly about the topic and they feel like, again, they're not being heard. And, and so that what, you know, the lighthearted banter 
actually turns into a real political fight. And I'm, I'm sure many people have experienced this where it starts off just like innocent conversation. And then somehow you're like shouting at someone you, you love over politics. Um, and so I, I, think, I think that that happens often um, because politics is about really important things and it does arouse such strong emotions. And it's very hard to keep the, um, the lightheartedness when, when those emotions come, come to the fore. So I think that's certainly a phenomenon. But I, I do think there's this other phenomenon going on right now where people really do want the excitement of getting into verbal arguments with someone on the street when cameras are watching. You see it at these rallies. You see it you know, at these protests or even riots in cities like Portland and Seattle, that there is a thrill to that sort of thing. And it speaks to this, um, frankly, just a bit of boredom in our lives today. There, there's a sense of, of, I think, rootlessness that everyone has. And it's coming out in this search for uh, exhilaration or adrenaline. Um, and I, I, I personally think that's, that's a big problem. You talked about just now politics, and, and I'm really interested, particularly in 2020, which seems like a very different time in many ways than 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016, and a lot of, of the experiences that you had. In the end, you just, you, know, you just mentioned that politics is really important, but in the end, it sounds like you sort of came to the conclusion that politics is, I think you even say, bereft of a lot of the things that are really important, nuance honesty. Um, I mean, what are, what are you thinking today in August of 2020 about where things stand in terms of political prospects? And I don't mean like who's going to win this election or that election, but what politics has for us in terms of that optimism that you have about the country, right? I mean, do you still have that optimism in 2020? So I, I think first that, um, Chris and I came to believe that politics is both extremely important. It's the way we order our lives and our society. And we work through uh, some of the bigger you know, conflicts and, and value differences that we have. And it's how we move forward together. Um, it's also something that doesn't have the, the sort of higher aspirations we, um, we have as humans. You know, it, it, Politics shouldn't be where we find community. It shouldn't be where we find beauty. It shouldn't be where we find our sense of belonging and culture. And those are things that really make life worth living. And, and so I view it as problematic that we seem to be consumed by politics all the time. It's all people think about. It's, in, it's in, infiltrated everything. Like yeah. you can't watch sports now without seeing politics. You can't watch TV without seeing it. You can't go to the, you know, the library without like being accosted by it. And so it's, it's a really bad thing that our lives have become dominated by this because it does take us away from those more meaningful things. And there, there's clearly a connection there. It's, it's sort of the breakdown of meaning and community in our lives that have made politics all consuming, but politics is also now crowding it out. And so that's problematic. And yet I think it also has become, you know, the way we, we, can, we can change the things we don't like. And there are so many things we don't like today in, in, 2020 America. And I think that's true on the left. It's true on the right. And everybody is so engaged because, you know, we've, we've just realized, you know, over a few decades that the way the country is heading is not the way we want it to continue going. And I think that that's natural in American life. You see these waves um, or cycles of American history uh, where every 50, 60, 70 years, you know, things that have been building up for decades uh, come to a head, you know, there's change that's wanted and we go through this political turmoil, but 
end on the other side with a new consensus and a new direction. And I think we'll go through that again. And so what makes Chris and I hopeful is that from 2016 to now, you know, everything we saw on the road, um, there, there were things that people cared passionately about. They cared a lot about feeling a sense of dignity in their lives. And we saw that at the Trump rally in Phoenix. We also saw it with the truck driver, uh, Pete, who we drove from Las Vegas to Louisiana yeah. with. We saw it with the lobsterman in Maine, who yeah. uh, just, you know, he really, he cared about the dignity of the fishermen. Um, that, that, that was very important. And people don't feel like they're getting the dignity they deserve today. Uh, we, came, we came to view... Um, uh, the criminal justice system as this area that Americans just felt like doesn't represent us anymore. It's falling short of our ideals. Um, we found racial issues popping up in Tulsa. You know, it came to the fore that there yeah. were all these legacies of its racial history that the city was trying to reckon with. And so it's, it's no surprise to us that in 2019, 2020, all of these issues came back to the fore and that those are the things dominating the discussion today. Um, at the same time, we saw so many good people on the ground working to fix these problems. And to us, that is the American spirit. It's, it's this entrepreneurial energy to solve problems in your local community. And so ultimately, that's what gives Chris and I hope. I think 2020 is going to be uh, very divisive. I'm mm -hmm. very worried for what happens after November 3rd. I think we're in for some chaos after that. But over the longer term, in, in the next couple years, I'm very hopeful because uh, again, the vast majority of people we met on the road were united in wanting a better politics and wanting better for their communities, wanting better for the country. And people are going to start acting um, uh, and working to achieve that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think those are great examples. Like you talked about Pete, the truck driver, right? So he's a MAGA t-shirt wearing guy, right? And he talks about um, being a Trump supporter, but he doesn't like Trump's climate change denial, right? When we talk about politics, you were talking about not being able to go anywhere. We just, today's newsletter that we have coming out, we're talking about yard signs, right? Like I walk down my street, everybody's got a yard sign and they've got, and they're sometimes putting up yard signs after someone else puts up a yard sign with mm -hmm. something opposite, like physically pointed at it, right? And it, it sort of lends itself to this either or kind of thinking about things. Then you look at somebody like Pete, and I think if you were to give a description of what Pete does, what he looks like, you know, people would get one sense of what he thinks because he has, you know, a, a MAGA shirt on. You spend all this time with him driving across the country, and you find out he's a lot more complicated. People aren't just one flat sort of personality. Um, and I think, I think this is really interesting. You talked about the lobstermen in, um, in Maine. It seems to me that as you go through these different personalities, you find things that are similar. You talked about wanting to solve problems, that kind of thing. But then there are regional differences. Um, there are personal differences in terms of families and everything like that. I mean, if you, when you think back about all of this, I'm assuming... I don't want to put words in your mouth in terms of writing a book. You're not trying to necessarily lecture people on how to live, right? I didn't get that sense from the book because you're still figuring this out. Mm -hmm. um, but what is it you wanted to communicate about all those people and those personalities to the point where you, you go in depth and spend a lot of time with individuals? So I think there were a few things we were trying to communicate. I, I, I think the first was, and you, you just kind of called it out, 
is that there are these shared values that we have as Americans. And we, we, we heard the same aspirations expressed over and over again to the point where we, we really did come to believe that there were these unique values that we all shared as Americans. Things, th things like um, you know, belief in redemption, the, the, the value in, in, in uh, dignity of every human life, um, uh, the desire to leave a better world for our children. Th these were things that we, we heard over and over again and, and speak to these shared values. And we want people to remember that because it's so easy to feel like, oh my God, I share nothing with, with people in, in the other party. Like, how can we, how can we ever get along? Um, so the shared values was first. I think second, we we're trying to show the complexity of people. You know, we, we, we tend to assume things about, about the other side or about, you know, someone based on little identifiers, like the party they belong to or the religion uh, they have or their ethnicity. And, and yet people are so much more complex than those identities um, uh, can reveal. And then third and finally, I, I think we're, you know, we're trying to show through these, these intimate stories that the other side uh, also has virtues. And you know, we, we tend to view politics through this lens of like, here's the best of my party and here's the worst of their party. And as a result, I find myself all the time having to answer questions from people saying like, how could you be a Republican? Because like the Republicans do X, Y, Z horrible things. And they never say like, oh, and they also do those like 10 great things that I resonate with and are the reasons why I'm a Republican. Nobody's, nobody's a member of their party because of the worst aspects of their party. They're always there because they believe in something special or good about it. And so what we're trying to do is use these people to draw out the virtues of both sides. And Chris and I often say that, you know, neither of us switched parties by the end of the book. I'm still a Republican. He's still a Democrat. But we became better versions of ourselves and we're able to recognize the virtues of the other side, that, that both parties bring something very important to the table and it's worth appreciating what they're doing for, for the American project. So when you think about and and you said you know you're a republican you didn't change your you didn't change your political party and neither did chris when you think about democrats what is it that you feel like you learned throughout all of this to appreciate about the democratic party yeah so i i would i would point to three things but i think they're all very interrelated um one i think democrats really respond to the language of empathy i think they have a very intuitive feel for people who've been left out of the american project or who feel uh, marginalized within it and they res they respond to that that pain with a lot of empathy empathy and bring and bring their passion to to try to to try to meet that uh, that pain. Um, so I think the language of empathy brings a lot to our politics. Um, I think second, Democrats are um, very attuned to the value of effects. So if if Republicans care a lot about process, they want to make sure the process is fair. That you know we're doing things in the right way. Democrats place a lot of value on looking at the outcomes. So it doesn't matter if it was a fair process. Like we need to look at the outcomes and, and write things that have, be, have become out of balance. So, you know, it's always kind of put in, into the classic uh, dichotomy of like, do you care about a quality of outcome or do you care about a quality of opportunity? And the truth is both are really important. Like it, it actually doesn't matter what, what the outcomes are at the end. And if we've created a system that leads to disparate outcomes, then we might want to figure out how we can how we can correct for it. And Democrats are very good about thinking about the inequality of outcome and and how we can adjust for it. Um, and then third and finally, I, I think Democrats tend to be at the vanguard of trying to e expand rights. And, you know, as a Republican, I, I find myself often getting very worried about what they're doing. But it's important for our for our project. Um, I'm, I'm a 
I, I call myself a Burkean uh, conservative. And, and you know, the, the idea behind Burkean conservatism is that you really do need progress for society to move forward, but we want it to be judicious. We want to make sure that we're preserving all the great things about our, our past and make sure we're not losing things as we have progress. And, and Democrats believe very strongly in progress that you know, they want it now because things aren't as good as it can be. And that, that, that dialectic is really important. And Democrats have uh, an important role to play in highlighting for society you know, where progress is really needed. Um, and it goes back to the point about empathy, that they, they, they see where there's pain or where things aren't quite living up to our ideals or aspirations and they're pushing for progress in those areas. Do you think in those conversations, you behave differently or Chris behaves differently because of that appreciation? Or do you think you're still stuck in the same kinds of back and forth um, with other people because they don't necessarily have that experience or that appreciation? I think I've become more tolerant. I think I've gotten better at having those communications, but it's still really hard because at the end of the day, it, it's all driven by emotion. You know, you, 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 again, you, you feel strongly about things. You feel like uh, you're trying to share this really important point and it's not getting through. And so you get frustrated and that, that can spiral. And so one of the big points that Chris and I make in the book is um, that almost as important as how you have the conversation is coming back to the table when the conversation breaks down. So often Chris and I would fight on the road and it, it, early on, it was very hard for us to reconcile afterwards. It was very hard to say, I'm sorry, or I was wrong. I shouldn't have said it that way. Um, but as we did this more and more, we found that we, it, the reconciliation came more easily. We would still fight on the road, but within you know minutes, we were able to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Or, um, uh, you know, I got a little too aggressive. I, I'm sorry. And we found that saying the words, I love you, man, was like the best tonic for those fights because it reinforced the relationship. It said, no matter what was said, the relationship comes first. And so I think what, what I've actually gained is when conversations do turn into fights, the ability to come around quickly and, and to reconcile. And there's an interesting thing in health that we've learned, which is, you know, it doesn't actually matter, um, let's say you're going for a run. It doesn't matter how far you can run. What actually matters is how quickly you can recover afterwards. That's like the real sign of health. And I think that's true in relationships and conversations as well. It, the, the real sign of a strong bond or a strong relationship is not, you know, do you ever fight or not? But when you do fight, how quickly you can recover from it. So that definitely will work with people that you know as well as you now know, Chris. Um, and do you find yourself in groups of people talking about these things? Because as you say, politics is something that you're interested in and, and presumably you still get into a lot of those conversations and you're presumably still around people who strongly disagree with you. Um, when you don't know someone as well, does the same thing apply? Like, do you have to, do you, do you stop and remind yourself, even if you know, don't know the person very well, uh, you have some appreciation for them? I mean, is there, are there pieces of that that you can take for people who are less close to you than Chris? Well, I, I think the important thing for, for uh, having conversations with people you don't know that well is, is to think about what your intention is going into it. And if your intention is to change the other person's mind, it's very unlikely you're going to do that in one conversation. The, the truth is when we're confronted by facts that um, invalidate our own point, we actually tend to lock in to our, our worldview instead of changing our minds. And so going into a conversation, hoping to change someone's mind who you've never met before is very unlikely. Um, and, and so my, my first answer is if that's your intention, maybe just don't do it. Like don't have the conversation and decide that you're better off talking about something else that, that 
you might actually find real common ground on. Uh, early in our friendship, Chris and I bonded over things we both loved. We both loved California. We both loved great books. We both loved um, war reporting. And so those were the things that mattered to us. And we found friendship around. Um, now, if, if your intention is to to learn and to to try to understand someone else's worldview and to to maybe gain some understanding about an issue that that uh, you don't have, then I think it's a very different conversation. And then I would say, if you go into it with a genuine desire to listen to the other person, to try to understand the experiences that have led to their current worldview, then I think you really can have a great conversation. And you can do that with someone you've you've just met. Um, I think Chris and I found that, you know, especially with uh, people like Pete, the truck driver, and Willis, you know, to the extent that we um, we were able to spend a lot of time with them and to just ask questions about their life. Like you really were able to draw out those deeper values and the complexity of their worldviews. Uh, you know, we never asked someone right off the bat, like, what do you think of Donald Trump? Because, you know, that, that's actually not going to be that instructive. Um, it's much more instructive to ask someone like, what, it, you know, what are the most powerful experiences of their lives that have shaped the way they see the world? Or, um, you know, what are the values they hold dear? And how does that play out in their life? Like those, those, are, those are better questions that ultimately led us to the the deeper complexity. I was looking to see if I could find it, but there's one place in the book that you talk, you guys talk about democracy being sort of a messy conversation, right? It's in the same way that people aren't all one thing or another, we're not all going to come to some kind of resolution. We're still going to hold these differences. And you talk about that difference being something that continues the conversation, not disagreement as being something that can continue the conversation isn't the reason to walk away from the conversation, right? And I love that. I love the idea that, um, and, and as you just said, depending on what you're going into a conversation for, if you're planning to change someone's mind when you have disagreement and you can't resolve that, then that is a reason to walk away from it. But if you really want to learn from somebody, then allowing that disagreement and allowing that messiness is okay, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there's actually this this great little book by G.K. Chesterton when he came to the U.S. It's, I think it's called What I Saw in America. And he opens by reading the immigration form that you have to fill out when you come to America. And it asks you questions like, are you an anarchist? Are you trying to overthrow the U.S. government? And he he laughs about it because he's like, who would answer these questions? I'm totally Honestly. an anarchist. <laughs> yeah, but but he, he said it, it spoke to the um, kind of the American... Uh, like frankness or genuineness, that they would actually ask this question and expect a genuine answer. And the reason it ultimately matters is because, you know, we're willing to take in anyone in America so long as you agree to abide by our, our, our laws and our, our traditions. And the reason that's important is because, you know, no matter what else about you, as long as you're willing to like believe, to uphold the system, to, to agree to live within the system, um, you're free to do whatever, whatever you want. We believe in liberty. Um, and I feel that way about political conversation. And th to the paragraph you spoke about in the book, what we're saying is that, you know, democracy is messy. Like it's, it's one big conversation among 350 million people. And everyone has a role to play. Like activists have a role in raising things onto the public agenda. Politicians have a role in arguing and making compromise over them. Uh, journalists have a role in trying to find the truth and like portray it to the American people. Um, 
conservatives have a role in trying to temper the excesses of, of activism. And so everyone has a role to play. And when you view it through that lens, you can appreciate like where someone's coming from. But it doesn't extend to people who don't believe in the project. And, and this is something that I've come to believe very strongly while being out on the road, is that so long as people believe that we can create a shared future together, that, that we're still bound by something, that there's a reason to keep the American project going, as long as you believe in that, we can disagree on anything. And there's no reason for us to, to come to blows. But if someone doesn't really believe in the project, if they, if they have you know, the intention to overthrow the US government, or you know, they want to dismantle parts of, um, uh, parts of our country that, that would lead to like real chaos, then, then that's not something I, I can really engage with. And that, that becomes the red line um, for me. And uh, I, I think that that accords with our entire structure of governance that you know, so long as you're willing to live within the, institu the, the Constitution, and the Constitution is, is an incredibly broad document that creates a structure for, for governance and for how we live, um, as long as you're willing to live within that and work within the rules, then, then we can disagree about anything. Mm. Yeah, I, th I, th I think those, I mean, when I read the book, part of what I saw was that there was an expansion sort of of thinking about the different ways in which people want to further that project, right? And, and while somebody might be able to look at some person behaving in a certain way in terms of protesting or activism or whatever, and say, yeah, that's really, you know, that's not really going to help what you guys end up with is saying, look, these are all part of that big mess. And as long as, as you say, it fits within living within this set of laws. But I, I do think it's really interesting that you spent as much time as you both did looking at, um, at law enforcement, criminal justice, you know, you went to prisons, you went and looked at programs for people who had come out of prison. And in fact, one of the very first stories that you tell in the book is about your differing responses to law enforcement. Um, so I wonder, particularly with what's going on today around us, I mean, even this week and last week, you talked about the importance of redemption. Um, how do you take all of what you saw and, and, and learned on those journeys and all these different personalities you met and, and what you found out about criminal justice and all of this, I mean, there's this one point when you're in Tulsa, and I think you had walked away, but Chris is talking to Mimi, and um, she, you know, he's, he was describing how you both felt leaving, um, I think, Jackson, Michigan, and going to Vermont, and you had this, what he describes as, I think, vicarious trauma about the fact that you were able to walk away from this and kept, kept revisiting yourselves, the difficulty of, of what you had seen, um, and seeing people try to be redeemed, that sort of thing. And I, I think there's a point at which you guys say something about just that trauma wears on everybody. And Mimi says to him, he says, it hurts. It hurts to go through that vicarious trauma. And she says, yeah, I want it. I think maybe it should, right? Maybe it should. And that's what I want legislature, legislators to feel. I want them to feel that discomfort so that they know they have to move forward. I feel like today we're all feeling that discomfort, right? And we have been for the last few months, we see these individual stories, whether we're talking about someone who is, um, you know, a person who has been harmed uh, or a person who's doing the harm and all the stories we've been seeing this summer. 
as we said about democracy, it's this big, messy experiment. And with so many people, of course, we're never going to have this clear, nice path towards a better society and um, to get things right, right at the beginning. And so what ends up happening is you have, you know, one side that maybe gets too aggressive and then the, uh, you know, the political backlash comes and the other side uh, is, is, is getting to like, weigh in with its voice. And then the other side realizes like, okay, we took this too far. Maybe we should take it in a different direction. And you're already starting to see that, uh, you know, in the last few weeks, um, as it's seemingly there's violence across multiple cities in response to, uh, more and more incidences, um, uh, you're, you're seeing a backlash against the violence and increasing support for, uh, Trump's law and order message. And so all of a sudden Trump's poll numbers are rising. And so you see the, the Democrats respond in kind where they're, they're now coming out and, and condemning the violence and calling for cooler heads to prevail. And so, you know, it's, it's a very messy process, but it, it leads towards hopefully, um, better outcomes in the long run, because now I think there's, there is a recognition of this deep pain and trauma that exists in black communities and across the country. Um, and that's now, you know, front and center in our public debate. But there's also this concern for order and, and social harmony. And so that that is an equally important issue. We don't want to watch civilization break down uh, in response to that pain and trauma. And so uh, it's it's messy, but it, it's going to keep moving forward. And and so it, it goes back to our message of hope that, you know, hope uh, is the belief that together uh, we can make things better. And I think Chris and I saw that so many people are trying on the ground to make this better across the criminal justice system, across the country in various ways that uh, we, we believe we'll get there. It's just going to take time and it's going to be a messy, nonlinear process. Well, and together too doesn't mean a lot of times what we think of as like the Hallmark card kind of together unity thing, right? So you, you give this kind of off-camera um, you relate this story that's off camera at the Phoenix rally of people who are totally on opposite sides who have a discussion and they might not agree and they might not agree about how to move forward, but together means actually engaging with one another and listening to one another, not necessarily saying, you know, as you said before, oh yeah, I'm going to change my point of view or I'm going to be persuaded to do exactly what you want me to do. Together means being in that messy conversation uh, sometimes being angry at each other, right? Sometimes, um, sometimes protesting um, in ways that people don't like. Not property destruction. I, I get you're not saying that, and I, you know, I don't want to condone that. Um, but together doesn't have to mean like we're all holding hands and singing together. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to me, to me, it, it it really just means you're you're engaging in the. Uh, democratic process. Um, I, there, there's this great, I went to law school and there, there's this great um, constitutional legal scholar who said, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't think of um, uh, the constitution as, as something that, that is to be interpreted. The constitution is something that is to, uh, how did he say it? Uh, he called it doing constitutional law because constitutional law is something that, you know, everybody gets to gets to participate in and think about and, and wrestle what equality under the law means and um, what it means to, to have the rights and privileges of an American citizen. Th these are things that we all wrestle with in our day-to-day -day lives. And, you know, lawyers have, have deeper knowledge about uh, the history and debates of, of the constitution, but it, it's something that should be real in our lives. Like you do it. It's not something that's just, you know, in the halls of Congress or in courts to be interpreted. And, and I think that's right. And so to me, it doesn't really matter what you believe about 
you know, issue after issue. All that matters is that you, you're trying to engage as a citizen um, uh, in the process of, of American life. And um, uh, as long as, as you're doing that, that's what it means to move forward together. Uh, you know, it's the same in families. Not everyone has to agree with, uh, with their, their brother or their parents, um, but we're living life together and, and you know, our, our decisions affect each other and we recognize that and it creates a sense of responsibility, but also um, you know, we, we get am- amazing benefits from it. I know that you went back personally, but you also had fact checkers go back and, and because this was over a period of time and there were a lot of different personalities involved. Have you have you been in contact with with the folks that you talk about in the book? Have you heard from them after the book was published? What kind of feedback have you gotten from those folks? Yeah, yeah. So the the first two road trips were not um, they they we we weren't planning on writing a book, and so some of the people we met on those road trips, we had to go back and really ask them a lot of questions to make sure we got it right. I think they were really surprised to hear that there is there is a book, and uh, in sort of good journalistic fashion, we 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 didn't let them read the book. Um, uh, we we just we we would list out facts and say like, is this correct? And uh, they would respond. And so we we did have two people from from those early trips finally read the book and. Uh, uh, to, to like our great uh, delight, they, they, they loved it. They said um, it really captured what they, how they saw their own communities. Um, so we were really excited about that. Um, and then there were a few people later in the book who we, we really grew close to. Uh, and uh, we, were, we were close to most of them, but um, there were a few people in particular that we spent a lot of time with. So Pete, the long haul trucker, um, Mimi, uh, these were people we developed very strong bonds with. And so we've been in touch with them over the last couple of years um, on and off. And when the book came out, they actually ended up doing a big book talk with us. So they came on, uh, we got to ask them some questions. They asked us some questions, which was really wonderful and uh, meaningful for us. Um, so we've stayed in touch with a lot of them. I think some of the ones that have been harder are the prisoners that we met at Parnell Prison. Uh, a lot of them have moved to other prisons and we can't really communicate anyway. So um, we've lost touch with some of them, but uh, Franny who runs the the Shakespeare in Prison program uh, has been able to kind of keep us updated on some of them, uh, which is really nice. I hope you will check out Jordan and Chris's book, Union, and we'll include a link to that in our show notes as well as some other information about their work. When I think back on the things I learned, not just from the book, but from the conversation with Jordan, I think one of the most important things we talked about was the motivation behind the conversations that we do have and the disagreements and the discussions that we have. And Jordan's point about the fact that people like the excitement of what he called political combat that sometimes there's some boredom in our lives and and we're looking for that excitement. And often we do that because politics has come to dominate so much of our lives. Um, We look for that excitement in political disagreement. I think what we can all take away from Jordan and Chris's experience um, that they've documented in the book is that relationships matter a lot. Uh, circumstances matter a lot. And we are going to have disagreements. 
But what we really hope to be able to do, I think, is do what Jordan and Chris did, which is to say, yeah, let's identify where the disagreement is, but let's not forget that we really care a lot about each other. And that uh, at the end of the day, what we really hope to do is solve problems, move forward, highlight the things that we, we share in common without hiding the things that we disagree about. And I think I will take from my conversation with Jordan some self-reflection about when I'm in the midst of a disagreement with somebody, what are the circumstances? Can I, can I help that disagreement by reminding myself and reminding the person that I'm talking to about the importance of our relationship? Can I take myself and the person I'm talking to out of circumstances that are performative, that force me to take sides um, or to feel like it's political combat? I hope you found something in the conversation that you can take away and apply to your discussions. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.